Hey, David, it is fantastic to connect with you again. And we are carrying on what I really am enjoying this series on the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And we have been leaning into what are sometimes referred to as these three temptations of Jesus uh, in the wilderness. We know there were probably more. Dr. Luke hints at the fact that for 40 days, Jesus was tested. So he was probably tested in a lot more stuff than this. But we've been enjoying just leaning into that, and we're going to carry on with that today. And um, and you're going to kick us off into this fantastic reading and help us from Luke's Gospel. Yes, absolutely, John. It's a pretty intense start to uh, life in Jesus' <laughs> ministry, isn't it? It's absolutely. It, it definitely, m- many, many a minister of the Gospel out there would uh, happily have a quieter start to their life than the one that, that Jesus had to go through. But And of course, that's the fascinating thing about this story, isn't it? That what we're seeing, I think, in terms of the ancient way of presenting is is these these series of tests and statements about Jesus are setting up to the ancient reader of Luke Jesus's credentials really at Indeed. some level the, the father has spoke good things about him he comes from good genealogy that, that affirms what the father has said and now he has to go through a test and it's almost like and I mean this not to sound facetious John but you know when you buy your car or you buy a new fridge, or you buy your new digital camera, you'll often notice there's a quality control sticker on it somewhere. And that sticker tells you, hey, somebody tested this, it's going to be okay. To the ancient reader, this early part of Luke's gospel in the beginning of Jesus's ministry, now we might think, well, wait a minute, isn't Jesus son of God? Surely he doesn't need to be tested. But of course, Luke is presenting this story to convince you of that. So this is a form of and I mean it, I hope this isn't uh, offensive, but the, it's a, it's almost Luke's quality control sticker on Jesus. Look, For he's sure. worthy, you know. Um, mm. So mm. with that, he, we, left, uh, we left Jesus w- one of three temptations <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. Now we move into temptation two, and I'm just going to read just the text of this second temptation, Luke chapter four and verse five. It says, Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Wow. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Mm. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. I I can't help um, hear that particular temptation, David, of, of mm. the three that we will deal with. This one almost immediately propels me back to the garden, that mm-hmm. first encounter of the serpent with the woman and then the encounter with the woman and the man. And and I mm-hmm. cannot help but just just see the incredible parallels between these two ideas. When you when you look back mm-hmm. at that Genesis account, we, we've already lent into this idea where the word of God is questioned, challenged by the serpent. 
And and then you get this this incredible first five and six idea in Genesis, David. Now I'll I'll lean mm. back into into Luke. The serpent says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then it says this, verse six at Genesis three, when the woman saw mm. when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And of course, in this temptation, we've got a a sort of a seeing moment, haven't we? We've got like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he takes Jesus up to this high point and shows him. So, so Mm -hmm. what struck me, what struck me in the parallel to Genesis and, and Luke in this respect, I don't know if I'm stretching this too far again, but of course the woman must have seen that tree, that fruit before, mm-hmm. but now she's seeing it in a different way. She's seeing it yes. in a in a could I say a desiring way? There, mm-hmm. There's something of desire has been opened up in her, so that she now sees the same fruit she saw before, but sees it in this this different way. And mm-hmm. and there's a sense in which when we think about Jesus, perhaps that that actually he would have understood as a 30-year-old man the kingdoms of the world. He would have understood mm. how the world worked. And in many ways, of course, we believe he would have understood his call and his purpose at that stage to, as it were, win the world through a redemptive purpose. But here's it, mm. it feels to me like the adversary is doing to Jesus exactly the same thing that he tried to do uh, that, that he did to the woman he's trying to do to Jesus mm-hmm. the thing that he did mm-hmm. in that show Jesus a different view help uh, almost trying to move Jesus to see the same thing differently and therefore move towards it is that is that sort of a fair connection mm. do you think I I, th- I you you made me smirk when you started that because I was sat thinking about Genesis and this text as well. So if if there's any agreement in just us both going to the same place in our mind, then then take that as my as my support. Um, I think you're almost seeing uh, there's 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 lots, lots of levels of parallels because there's almost a sense where you could see the the, the adversary, the, the Satan enters the garden, which is made the way God intended it, and shows the human another option. Now we come to Jesus, however many years later, the adversary, the Satan comes to another human. Mm. But this time what they show is the disordered world, right? It's the yeah. world, the world that has grown out of the brokenness that the Satan introduced to the story. And now mm. says, because there's this sense of this is mine to give to you, right? Mm. Like this. So I, and you're not going to be surprised at this, uh, John, but I would want to jump very briefly to, to Philippians 2. Right? Yep, yep. And I, Luke, as a student of Paul's, this verse 6 of Luke uh, of, of Philippians chapter 2, just to remind, to remind us, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ mm. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God as something to be exploited, right? The New International Version says, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The, the Greek word uh, harpagmos, right, mm. which is the, the Greek word there, kind of 
a dominant, if you actually look up a Greek dictionary, the dominant translation of that word you get is something to be grasped. Yeah. Right? So who being a very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at. Mm. I have this image of of Adam and Eve grasping at the fruit, grasping mm. at equality with God. You can be like God. Yes, we want to be like God. We want the power. We want the knowledge of good and evil. They grasp at it. And then Paul introduces us to this idea of Jesus who does not grasp after these yeah, things. Beautiful. Right? beautiful. So, so now, okay, you know, we're, we're deep in Pauline theology. Think about how does Paul talk about Jesus sometimes? He talks about him as the second Adam, the second mm. human. The first human meets the devil and is presented with the choice. Do you want to grasp after this? And they do. And so we've got, this is a very long way of me agreeing with you, John. <laughs> we've got this second Eden story here mm. that the devil comes back and almost goes, well, it worked the first time here. Let's try it the second time here. Grasp after all these things. The stunning part of this story is that Jesus refuses to grasp after it. Now, I think Paul would then say, well, of course he does, because when he had equality with God before he was even born, he refused to grasp after that. So We're good. seeing this yep. invasion of good uh, and the authority of good into the world. So I think there's, I think there is Adam and Eve echoes all the way through this this sort of stuff. Yeah, so that was a very long way of me saying yes, John. No, I, I totally agree with you. I think that was brilliant, <laughs> David, and, and, and I really love that connection to the to the grasping or non-grasping mm. of Jesus in Philippines. So that was magnificent, mm. and it does again show that there is much more going on here in these temptations mm. and simply go, hey, do you want a shortcut to success? So yes. there's, there's, a, there's sort of a surface level of here's a quick here's a quick route to, and as someone once said, there's no shortcuts to anywhere worth going. And mm -hmm. although that's not in the Bible, it sort of could be, isn't it? It's, it's a, there's a, a real truth that, mm. that the Lord very rarely engages shortcuts. But of course, this is not, we mustn't reduce this down to a sort of a cheap shortcut offer. There mm. is something really that is fundamental at this, if you are the son of yes. God. So so if he has released that grasping mentality that he doesn't need to grasp at who he is, but that's mm. already been probed that, then one of the tests is, well, okay, have this then, and mm. seeks to lead Jesus into grasping for himself, grasping for his own position and his own, well, let's use a, a 21st century word in the sense of grasping for his own success. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is resistant to that idea. But but of course, it's it's fascinating, David, at the basis of that resistance. I think we, we reflected last time that the way of understanding these temptations is, is not just to look at what the adversary says, the devil says, but sort of look at the response of Jesus, how Jesus mm. responds, which might be a deeper clue into what is really, really going on here. Mm, mm. And it's interesting, isn't it, how Jesus responds here in, in terms of the basis of his resistance. He's not just resisting out of his identity, but he's resisting out of, again, the words of the Torah uh, and mm. and truth that that leads the way on that is that is that fair? I think that's I think that's exactly what's happening, and I and I think there's 
there's a few things you'd almost want to you'd almost want to get your your pen out and I don't know if you're the type of person that writes in your bible or, oh, yes. or you know <laughs> uh, you, you almost want to kind of draw circles and lines don't you there's mm-hmm. a question being raised about worship that is the question on the table which is which is fascinating because at some level that's always the question that's on the table. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of, of the, the author's name now, and and it's totally escaping me, which is which is terrible, John. But David Foster Wallace, there we go. We can edit this down later, and it looks like I totally instantly <laughs> knew his name. In, in, a, in a commencement speech that David Foster Wallace gave, who, and he died very young, and I think it's in a speech of his called This Is Water. You can mm. you could Google it at some point and have, have a read of it. But he makes this point in the middle where he, he basically says, and, and as far as I'm aware, Wallace is not a Christian, but he, he basically says to this group of students, you are all going to worship something. And, and he says, that is not a question. The mm. question is, what are you going to worship? Yeah. Right? And then he says this to them. I think about this. As, like I say, as far as I'm aware, not a Christian gentleman. He says this to him: a compelling reason to choose someone like Jesus. He says a compelling reason is the other things that you choose to worship will tear you apart. And now, of course, I would want to push that a step further and say that actually a compelling wor- reason to worship Jesus exclusively <laughs> mm. is that 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 many other things can can tear you apart. And 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 those many other things can be vast. Money, sex, power. But church can be one of those things. We're of living course. in a time period where we're seeing pastors who are being drawn to the appeal of successful church. You, mm. you, you use the word success a minute ago. And and it's and it's getting in the way of the worship of God only. And it's mm. like, how do we make this church quote unquote successful? And it tears them apart and it creates all sorts of problems. So anything that we put in our lives in the way of worship, uh, sorry, anything we put in our lives in the way of God, it is the the original sin at some level. You can be like God. the, the, The rabbis in some of the readings I've seen of the Genesis account, it is essentially... It's all about idolatry. The, the, hmm. the devil offers Adam and Eve something else to worship. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely, um, absolutely. And, and of course, the, the sort of, in its purest sense, worship, uh, true worship in, in the context we're talking about, true worship hmm. is, the, is the displacing of self and the placing mm. of God at the center, isn't it? So, yes. So, yes. so everything else is about really usurping the position of the Lord in His mm-hmm. rightful place within that, and of, and of course, here as also echoed in the garden, you you have a displacing of the Lord, and mm-hmm. it's being replaced with something else. It, yes. No matter how legitimate yes. that looks, or no matter how attractive that looks, it is. It is a replacement of someone who should always mm. sit at the center. And and that is really, I know that sounds maybe for some of our listeners almost overly simplistic, but that is really, that's the pull and push <laughs> of the whole that's biblical it is. narrative, isn't it? <laughs> it? It really is about, as a human, am I prepared on an everyday basis to consider what is seeking to usurp the centrality of the Lord in my life, what is seeking mm. to usurp His position, His the, mm. the the position that only He alone can have. Now, of course, we we've got we've got you know Satan here, like really audaciously mm. saying, "Worship me." 
So there is a a direct assault here on Jesus in a way that he doesn't directly assault uh, our first parents in the garden sort of mm. thing. So there is a direct assault of saying, mm. right, put me in the place of the Lord, which, of course, when mm. we track some of that nuance in the Old Testament, that's always mm. where Lucifer wanted to be. He wanted to be where yes. God was, and that was yes. ultimately the seeds of his own downfall. But he's really blatantly saying, mm. displace the position if you like, of the father here, displace mm-hmm. the position of God's authority in your world and replace mm-hmm. it with something else. And you'll get yeah. all this stuff anyway. Yes. And, and I think again, for us in our 21st century world, I think that's a fresh, dynamic, powerful message to us that mm-hmm. as men and women who want to be serious about following Jesus, we need to keep asking the question, is there anything that would threaten to usurp the position that only mm. he can hold yeah. in our world, whether that be self or other expressions of self? And the irony of it is, and this is where you start to see the brokenness. I feel like I feel like C.S. Lewis would explain this better than me, um, but that's probably true of any conversation we could have. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but almost the proof <laughs> of the pudding in the brokenness of it all. I, I'm thinking, uh, yeah, I'm not being clear here at all. I'm thinking about Lewis's conversations in Mere Christianity, where he mm. talks about how do we know that good and evil are not just two options? How do we know that evil is the bad one and good is the good one? And, and Lewis talks about how, well, because evil is a corruption of the good, right? Yeah. So so there is a good option of worship. It is the Father, right? It is, it is the Son, it's the Holy Spirit. And then all other forms of worship are corruptions of that. But you can still see within them the desire for the right thing that gets ill-formed. So fascinatingly, the the, the Satan wants to be worshipped himself. So he disrupts and distorts and breaks the worship of God in the garden by drawing the worship towards himself. Part of the proof of the brokenness of it is that what you result in is that humans don't actually directly worship Satan. They just don't worship God. What we've actually done is we've started to worship ourselves. Mm. So sometimes we get involved in disordered worship. In fact, I'd be tempted to say, John, most of the time we get involved in disordered worship. It's not satanic. It's Mm. not that we're all sat here worshiping the devil. It's that we're not worshiping God. We're yes. putting ourselves often at the center of the story. Um, so good. And I think that, I mean, I was thinking, there's a great book. Have you read James Smith's You Are What You Love? I don't know if no, you've read that. No, I've, I've seen it, but oh, not read it. Yeah, just like an amazing book. I would confidently say to pretty much anybody, it's it's in my must-reads of books in the last 10 years in in in. in mm popular Christianity. Not an easy read, but but not like an intense academic read. Mm. It's worth reading for many reasons, but one of the reasons alone is Jamie Smith's description of what happens when you go to the mall. Right? Yeah, and he sure. basically, he reads the mall as a temple, right? but a temple to yourself, right? yeah, yeah. where you are constantly told to worship yourself, worship yourself. Yeah. And yeah. he calls us as leaders and Christians to build churches as alternates to the mall right? mm-hmm. so that we turn up in church and we're told, actually, stop thinking about yourself, yeah. worship Jesus, and Indeed. that will actually be the, the right way of your life, which is, is directly what Jesus responds to the Satan, isn't it? Worship Indeed. the Lord your God and serve him yeah. only. I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of a, 
Shema uh, feel Indeed. there as well. Only. <laughs> Only, absolutely. And, and before we lean into that, I, I, I think one of the challenges, and I've said this to some leaders as I've reflected, I, I get a glorious privilege of traveling around as part of my translocal opportunities and, and speak in different contexts. And I have noticed an emergence of worship that is more about us than about him. Mm. Mm. And we just got to watch that and a little a little just nudge to any great songwriters out there listening to us or people mm. aspiring to worship or lead others. I, I, I challenged a group of, of people recently. I said, try and spend 10, 15 minutes in your devotional time with the Lord, not thinking about yourself, mm. not asking for yourself, not praying for anything, just just giving. And and I think I think there is a discipline in our worship, where where we, even as followers of Jesus, have to train ourselves to intentionally not think about ourselves, even when worshiping. Mm-hmm. There, there has to come a moment. I, I, I love the moment in Isaiah, and it's a tipping point moment in Isaiah, when Isaiah is standing in the temple. He's already been prophesying and, and, and mm-hmm. giving the word of the Lord, and then he stands in the temple, and he saw the Lord, and his only reflection on himself in that moment was he was undone. It, it, everything else is about him, is about his glory. And I I challenged a context recently where I said, we must be careful not to worship worship mm. and, and make sure that we're not simply turning our worship times into me-centric moments. I think one of the mm. most phenomenal things we could offer people is having 20, 30 minutes in a week where they're not thinking about themselves, where they're actually thinking about the one greater than themselves and allowing his magnificence and transcendence to permeate our lives without even directly thinking about it and just being in his presence and not thinking about my mortgage and thinking about my car and thinking about (laughs) how much money I want or what I need or about my health but actually for a few amazing moments, forget about myself and think mm. only of him. I, I think that's possible, but I think, especially in our modern context, I think we've got to train people almost to do that mm. and help them to deliberately and intentionally not think about self even when worshipping him. It is a, mm. It's a discipline and maybe a challenge I would throw out to our, our listeners. Just, just think about him. And if... If we read the Genesis story the way we are doing, it's understandable why it's difficult. The original brokenness of humanity is the desire to be like God. So when we talk about ourselves, even in a church worship setting, there's a level wherein we're kind of trying to tweak the idolatry back in. That It feels yeah. like we're talking about God. This is why I think you would love uh, Jamie Smith's book as, as well, uh, because he, he literally talks about sitting in a worship service and taking the 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 hymn sheet and circling all the times yeah. that I yeah. am talked about in Indeed. the time of worship. Um, Indeed. And I would just say, I would just say to anyone that was interested, a really good model for how to do worship is the Psalms. <laughs> yes. Mm. And, and you'll notice you can talk about yourself, but notice how the psalmist talks about themselves. It's, mm. it's in a very different way than often how, how we talk about ourselves in contemporary mm. songs. And the psalmists often say things to God that we would never be brave enough to say to God. So mm. <laughs> I often encourage people, you, you know, like get the psalms into your worship because mm. it will it will guide you in it and, and frame you. And John, I'm almost interested to ask you, because I think 
a little bit of exegesis of the word worship in Greek is interesting. This mm. word proskuneo, yeah, right? We kind of literally to kiss yes, towards. towards. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I I, I do, but you you've reflected, you've written on worship in 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 books before, so. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, I, for me, there is a magnificent imagery right in right in the garden where, when the Lord makes the first human. So, mm-hmm. if if we just follow that that beautiful imagery and picture that's created, mm-hmm. the first human man, and it says in Genesis two that the Lord breathed up his nostrils. I love that with one <laughs> with one with very blessed blessed nostrils. It's a nice thought. And and of course, if we take it literally, the man's mouth is closed probably because mm. he's a human form, but he's not alive. The Lord breathes up his nostrils. And I I, I reflected uh, on this idea and I know I am stretching the text here. So so stretch alert coming up for our, mm. for our listeners. But, <laughs> but if we just follow the imagery of that, for the Lord to breathe up the man's nostrils, he has to mm. get right in the face of the man. Mm. Mm. If the man comes to life when the breath of the Lord goes up his nostrils and he opens his eyes, then mm. in theory, in theory, the first thing he sees is mm. the face of Add into that the very first commandment, have no other gods before me. Literally could be translated mm. before my face. Have nothing between mm. the face of God and your face. Moses meets with the Lord face to face. There mm. is this gorgeous, and of course, one of the pivotal moments in the life of Jacob, when Jacob wrestles with the Lord in the garden, is that he says, I saw the Lord face to face, and yet my life was spared. Yeah. Panim el panim. It's this yeah. face to faceness. The word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. There is this, I think there is a desire in worship where humans are drawn to the very face of God. And that idea of understanding the face of God as a place of intimacy and favor and grace and blessing. And the fact that our first parents would have worshipped God naked. Mm. All right, like literally naked. Mm. (laughs) There is literally nothing between them and God. And the first Mm. thing that comes into the garden when they sin is is they cover themselves before God. They They hide. They hide. There is something then coming between their face Mm. and the Lord's face. And so this this idea of worship being a kiss towards a, I, I think it is leaning, for me, it leans back to the unadulterated image mm. of of nakedness face to faceness before the lord there is nothing mm. between us and therefore mm. there is a coming to his face w- with with either a, a kiss or an expression of worship that allows mm. us to truly engage with his heart and i i think i think that golden thread runs through the text and is picked up in the nuance of proscuneo so there's a couple of things I'd there that I'd like to say about Proskuneo, but before we jump to that, the way you phrased that just there about this kind of nothing between us is is fascinating to me because of how this temptation goes, right? So as I, I talked about in earlier episodes in this series, John, there's, there's dynamics of ancient culture working here as to how would an ancient person see this? And 
And there's a question, and I'd love to come to this question before we finish uh, this episode, but just for now, there's actually a, the devil is sort of playing the role of broker here. If you notice, he is actually trying to get himself in between Jesus and God. So, so there's a way of what you're saying there in that, 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 that beautiful way of just kind of seeing what's going on in that story in Genesis is happening again here. Because the question, and let's just leave this question out there and we'll come back to it. Does the devil actually have this to offer to Jesus? Like, that's an interesting question. But he's definitely trying to pretend that he does. He's trying to be the salesman here. He's trying to say, hey, I can, I can actually get in the midst of this here and I can, I, I can, I can do a bit of something. And Jesus' response is to bypass him completely and say, no, no, no I'm not going to worship anything through you. I'm going to worship only, only my God and and interestingly interestingly as well and serve him only that language I, I posted something on social media this week that seemed to attract from my small world of social media attracted a lot of attention and I I, I asked the question about why we always talk about leadership and mm-hmm. essentially not so much about servanthood and Jesus calls us to serve and it's interesting that here I'm going to give you authority I'm going to give you glory if you yeah. do this and Jesus says all I actually want to do is worship God and serve him. I just think the global church is not doing great in the public media right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, we're literally, we're getting pushed. I don't know if it's like this in the UK, but you know, there's a, there's a big global church that, that our leading network has done a documentary on recently, right? This is about glory. This is about authority. I think it's a great time for us as Christians to remember, worship God, serve him only. And and if we're talking about leadership and if we're talking about success, it should only be talked about within those overarching confines of mm-hmm. worship God, serve him. Does that make sense? Be- oh, beautiful. And I think I think that takes us beautifully to Jesus' response. Jesus, mm-hmm. again, quoting Torah, uh, Book of Devarim, the Book of Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. Uh, and he takes us back this time to chapter six. And and any of our listeners who have engaged at any significant level with, with the scriptures, the minute you hear Deuteronomy six, your mind immediately <laughs> jumps to Shema. Yes. Hear, O Israel, the yes. Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, that's mm-hmm. not the bit that Jesus quotes, but that is the gateway into the bit that Jesus quotes. Jesus quotes technically verse 13 of Deuteronomy 6, which would sort of uh, read, fear the Lord your God. It's it's mm-hmm. that, that word fear is translated worship in the context of Luke and serve him only. Mm. But I, I think, David, fear the Lord your God, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. It cannot be heard without mm. reading Shema and Turn. then and then the bit that follows. And it's interesting, the bit that follows. So, for example, the immediate pre-bit to verse 13, as, the, as they're about to go into the land, it says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, listen to these words. To give you a large a land with large flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things. You did not provide wells. You did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of slavery. <laughs> I, what struck me was the stuff you didn't build, the stuff you didn't plant, the stuff you did. 
I'll give it to you. And that is exactly the opposite yes. to what is being brokered here by, by the enemy. Yes. He's he's offering something to Jesus in the same spirit of Deuteronomy 6. He's mm-hmm. offering Jesus things that he did not build. I know we could argue, of course, the Lord is the, the builder of the universe. But in terms of the kingdoms of this, yeah. he's offering Jesus some stuff. He is literally usurping the place of God in this text. Yeah. So here's here's Yahweh saying to Israel as they're about to enter the land of promise, love me with all of your heart because I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord and I am Echad. I am one. I am unrivaled. There is no one like me and love me with your whole being. So that's that essence of worship that we've been talking about. The centrality of the Lord who is one. And then he says, and if you do that, then I'll take you into a land. I'll give you a whole bunch of stuff that actually you didn't earn, you didn't build, you didn't plant, yeah. you didn't sow. But I'll do that. And when I do that, don't forget, I did that. Yes. And then it says, fear the Lord and serve him only. So so again, for our, for our listeners to think that when Jesus is quoting the text of Torah, He's not just quoting what we call the address of the verse. He's he's quoting the nuance of the passage. He's quoting yes. the deeper meanings of Shema. He's saying, yeah. he's saying, actually, for me to accept this is to allow you to usurp the place of God yes. and to believe that you can give me something that only Yahweh can give me. Yes. And and it's just it's when you put those ideas together, which you've threaded beautifully for us, I think you end up with this is like Jesus uh, to use a baseball or a cricket analogy. This is like Jesus knocking the ball out of the park. I mean, this is yeah, a dynamic yeah. rebuttal yes. to the adversary. I mean, there's nowhere there's nowhere to go. And I think the way that, that Satan reacts in the third temptation even even reaching to quote scripture, I think shows the level at which the second temptation has absolutely floored him. The, or the second response to this temptation has floored him because it is a magnificent, unequivocal response. Is that fair? It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And and this Jesus' answer, and this goes back to a constant repetition at two texts about reading the whole text, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, is this is this depth charge into the mm. into the argument because because it silently alludes to, I know exactly what you're going on to here. Indeed. You're trying to imply that you have things to give me. I don't need them because <laughs> mm. the Lord, if I worship him and serve him, Come the on. Lord will give me these things. So you're actually, you're offering me a promise that, and it's interesting even at that point, the, the only other thing I wanted to add about this notion of proskuneo, this Greek word for worship and I think it's doubled up with the fact that it's used in the Greek translation to replace the Hebrew word for fear. Yes. Um, literally, it is the language of brokerage again. Mm. So to kiss the feet of a patron, right? When somebody comes, you would see this, and we even still do it in contemporary world, we'll bow sometimes. Mm. When, when you, if you go to be knighted by the queen, you kneel. There is throughout all sorts of, I say that because you and I, high likelihood of us being knighted one day. So we're well versed on, <laughs> well versed on the traditions. <laughs> but there's, there's this long-standing tradition that when you come to somebody who is, above you, you lower yourself to indicate 
that I am inferior to this person. And it also offers some praise toward them. So, so this language of kissing towards, kissing the feet of the person is all about understanding our place. So, so when we say fear, it's not be afraid of God. It's the no. sense of I'm coming to one who is above me, to one who yes. is beyond me. So it is a, it's a really good parallel to the notion of worship properly understood, which yes. is, was right back to what you were saying about why worship services should be about us bringing ourselves before God and, and, yes. and, and joining in on that. So, so there's, and, and of course, now the Satan is coming in and saying, well, actually, no, why don't you worship me? Because yeah. it's almost like Satan saying, well, okay, maybe there's God out there, but then there's me and now there's yeah. you, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and it's almost as if Jesus moves the devil down a notch or two, says, no, 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 <laughs> actually, you don't get to be there. You, you you go back down, you back down. You are, maybe another way, Jesus is saying to the devil, you are not God's broker. That's right, okay? come on. You come cannot on. give me yeah. what God can only give me. Yeah, phenomenal. Which is maybe a summary line of what, what you've done with connecting it to oh, Deuteronomy, no, I- do you think? Absolutely phenomenal, and 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 even the 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 word used in Deuteronomy, uh, yeah, right. So it's it's that idea, exactly the idea of reverential fear and respect. It's not a terrorizing fear in this context. It's a it's mm-hmm. a knowing your place fear, fear the Lord and serve Him only. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you follow then the trajectory of Shema, the, the, this is an obvious conclusion. If mm-hmm. if Yahweh is Lord God, Lord. Mm. If he is a chad, if he is one, if he is alone, if there is no one like him, then fear him, worship mm. him. There, there is a natural connection here. So, so mm. actually, if you are following this idea that that in the Shema we are placing him at the center because there is no one like him. He is alone. Mm. He is one. Then. The inevitable next decision is to fear, worship, and serve. Mm. And and of course, it's that I think the enemy is trying to muscle in on and dislodge mm. in this. So so again that the, the the magnificence of the of the Torah text that Jesus has probably memorized comes to the rescue again in <laughs> pushing back against this very, very insidious temptation and test mm. that Jesus is being placed under. John, am I, can I say this? <laughs> that, like, I know that, that a, a lot of listeners to two texts are pastors and are people that are involved in Christian leadership. Like, like can we read this text then back into our own context? And, you know, actually, even if you're not in Christian leadership, but I'm thinking about the sh- shape of church here. Both of you and me are heavily involved in, in church life. You know, be careful... I almost want to say it like this, or can we say it like this? Be careful of how you get what you want. Right? The, the Philippians 2 tells us that God is going to give all glory and honor and splendor and, and authority and, and every knee will bow to Jesus. And, and you, you opened this episode talking about there's no shortcuts. But is there also mechanisms that we can be involved in that look like they actually just don't look like the way of God. So this actually worship the Lord and serve him only. Like I want to just say it, maybe this is too too harsh, but you know, maybe we as the church need to accept that the latest CEO success manual, the latest business marketing tool might not be the way 
mm-hmm. of the church. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and it might just be, and this may, might sound sensational, but it might just be another form of Luke 4, verses 5 to 8, that, oh, yeah. if we do X, Y, and Z, we can, we can, get, we can get what we want. Yeah. I mean, am I, am I being too unkind to say it that way? No, or? no, no I don't think so. I, I think anyone who, who loves Jesus, loves the church, and has lived more than five minutes, that would be a reasonable observation and one that's worthy of consideration. And mm. I think it's a constant challenge for all of us to, to examine not just what we get, but how we get it and mm. why we want it. And it's interesting to go mm. back to to your gorgeous Pauline reflection. Of course, it is interesting. We we tend to jump in and on that Christological section, verse 5, down to verse 11. And we tend to mm. see it almost as this magnificent piece of Christology. But of course, that piece of fantastic Christology is based firmly in Paul's appeal to a Christian community. And verse 5, which says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, is preceded with things like, therefore, if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, anything common in sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit, one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain mm-hmm. conceit. Rather, in your humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Paul seems to be holding Jesus up as the non-grasping saviour of the world, Mm. as the template of how the Christian Mm. community should live and serve in a non-grasping way, that we should be selfless or at least not self-centred in our motivations, in our ambitions and in our desires. And if we are not self-centred in our ambitions and desires, then we're not likely to hurt the world that we're actually trying to thrive in. I think it's yeah. when self is at the center, that's when I'm more likely to hurt you. That's when yeah. I'm more likely to hurt the Lord. And that's when I'm more likely to make a bit of a pig's ear of it. So <laughs> so actually it's the challenge of selflessness mm. in the light of Jesus's selflessness, which is put under scrutiny by the devil when he says, come on, grasp here, take this, mm. And I'll give you this. And and all of that is an attempt to relocate us away from the centrality of the Lord and the establishment of self in all things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the ultimate challenge for leaders and followers alike that we've mm-hmm. got to keep our eyes on and not, not become complacent about.